Welcome to Leading Georgia. I am your host, Brittany Bangert. While it's easy to find information on those leaders that have had a national impact, what about those right here at home? This podcast is about our communities, our leaders, local mayors, executive directors of our charities and nonprofits, our historical societies, our religious institutions. Leading Georgia is a community podcast by them for us. So join me as we learn about our leaders right here at home. This is Leading Georgia. Today's episode features Ashley Silfra. Full disclosure, Ashley and I used to work together. She started out as my manager and quickly became the best mentor I have ever had. As you know, this podcast always ends with asking each guest for their three leaders. Without a doubt, Ashley is one of mine. She is genuine, caring, super smart, and an amazing leader, not just in technology, but is more than deserving of being highlighted as a leader of Georgia. Here is Ashley. Um, so thank you for sitting down with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, Absolutely. So let's start with, as we always do, with your origin story. Where did you grow up? Sure. Uh, so I'm going to shift my answer to that a little bit because I can tell you about geography. I could tell you about, you know, socioeconomic stuff. But I actually want to shift and kind of talk about a little bit of the influences that were part of growing up for me. Yeah. So I grew up in a family of makers. Uh, my parents were both creators, creative, very curious about the world around them. And that really made its way into every part of kind of the choices that I made growing up, the opportunities I pursued and that they helped create for me um, and into a lot of how I view the world and what it means to show up as a leader in the world has been infused with the sense of uh, being a maker. Um, part of that has included kind of growing up around a lot of learning. Both of my parents were educators uh, for parts of their careers. And so learning was just infused into everything about how we grew up. Uh, when I was a kid, I was, I was homeschooled all throughout. And part of that included spending a lot of time at the library. Mm. It was my mom's favorite activity would be taking us to the library and coming home with literally dozens of books. And then we'd count them all up before having to go back. And it was just learning was a delight. And yeah. so that really became just such a central tenet of like who I was and how I grew up. May, may I ask to interrupt you um, already? Because I already do. Um, do may I ask, because this is a, a as a parent, uh, an awesome memory that I have that I hope my youngest boy Kate takes through. Do you remember getting your library card? Or was it just so early? Yes, yes. I do remember it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was such a big deal. It was like probably the first card I had like yeah. outside of, you know, just a basic ID. But um yeah, having that and having things actually checked out in my name as a yes. kid. Absolutely. Yes. And then also having the responsibility to make sure we didn't lose the books. Yeah, I have uh, <laughs> the the young one has had some chores to pay off a couple late fees. Um, there we go. And then a few just because me. Um, but I hope he holds on to that. So that gives me hope that you've held on to that that memory that, yep, you're signing your you are signing your name. This is not yeah. Brittany on behalf of. So I'm sorry yeah. to that. That's that's amazing. So please continue. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So origin story. So, you know, grew up in a family of, of creators and that really got infused quite early. Um, I was always super crafty as a kid. I loved making things with my hands. And that started out with like hot glue and like little packs of shells you could buy at the dollar store. And I would hot glue like googly eyes onto them and make little sea creatures. <laughs> and then I kept like finding new ways to work with my hands and make things. And, and uh, my mom had a sewing machine that she never really used. Um, but I really wanted to learn how to sew and eventually finally got annoying enough that my mom was like, fine, here, like, <laughs> let's, let's go buy you a pattern and just figure it out. And so I was mostly self-taught when I was like 10 or 11 years old on how to use a sewing machine, how to make things. And that just grew and expanded and blossomed into um, making all sorts of, of uh, like doll clothes and costumes and curtains. And eventually I made so many things that I um, didn't actually use them all. So even though I made tons of doll clothes because they didn't require a lot of fabric. So it was yeah. cheap to make. I never really played with dolls. And so I was like, well, what do I do with all these doll clothes? <laughs> and so I was very entrepreneurial at a young age. And so I started selling them. And that blossomed into my first small business. Wow. When I was in middle school, um, I, it was named Tiny Attire. Oh, and I sold doll clothes at like curriculum sales because I was homeschooled. So that was like the environment that I was in at little like local bookstores. Um, and then that kind of grew into a lot of custom orders. Uh, people would ask me to make like matching mommy daughter clothes and recover a set of furniture or make a set of curtains for things and start making costumes and um, that grew into uh, classes that I started to offer. So wow. that became kind of my my second business, really launched in high school, uh, called that Uncommon Elegance. Um, that ended up growing into weekly uh, or really annual like summer camps that I would host around certain historical themes. And my students would learn to make costumes from the time period and dances from the time period and food. And then we'd have a big event wow. at the end of it. And eventually grew that and kind of toured around the Southeast a little bit, running those classes and camps. Um, sold costumes online as well as part of that whole endeavor. In high school? Uh, so I, in high school, yeah. Wow. All of this is in high school. <laughs> That's incredible. So I learned really young, like the power of taking an idea and making it real. And that has been just so transformative. Mm. And I'm so grateful for the people who were a part of that journey. Like my mom literally would drive me to the fabric store, drop me off and come back like five <laughs> hours later after I had spent hundreds of dollars on I'm like supplies for my classes and coming up with these new ideas. So, you know, certainly is not a, a feat that someone can do on their own, but um, that really, it, it taught me an incredible amount about like product design, about marketing, about teaching, yeah. about like also accountability with, with myself for what I wanted to make real in the world. Yeah. So that was high school. And then I got whisked away into college pursuits and had the opportunity to go abroad. Um, I lived in China for a couple of years and that was wow. another really like pivotal point in my story. I feel like that was where I really learned what it means to be part of a global community. And mm. um, that was both like the, a very international group that I was a part of when I lived there. But I also, uh, as, a, as a very white privileged American, like being exposed to just a huge array of different cultures and experiences and perspectives. Um, and I ended up kind of coming alongside a group of uh, Pakistani refugees. Um, and they, they were a portion of like what just shifted the trajectory of my life and what I think is important. Um, I ended up kind of co-founding a grassroots organization that was working with refugee populations, specifically with um, educating women and providing opportunities for women. Mm. Um, and so that 
shifted a lot of what was important to me. And as part of that journey, uh, this was like in the middle of my college years, um, I decided I needed to finish my college education so that I could like continue doing some I mean, of these I'm things. sure your parents were thrilled with that decision. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so hop, skip, jump back over to the States, um, finished my education, ended up uh, kind of pivoting a little bit again and shifted into the tech industry. So got a degree in computer science, Worked as a full stack engineer for a while, kind of kept getting in different positions of leadership within that initial organization. Because I always knew for me that part of getting that computer science degree was earning my street cred. Mm. It was giving me technical skills that allowed me to be credible as a leader in some of those settings with very technical people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that served really well because when I started getting into leadership positions at a couple of different companies, the fact that when someone came to me with a technical challenge, while I did not necessarily understand all the pieces of it, I could appreciate the complexity of it. Yeah. I could talk about architectural design with them. I could talk about compilers and different programming languages and some of the challenges you get into with design to QA to deployment. Mm -hmm. And so it allowed me to be, I think, really approachable and, and empathetic with that group of people. Um, so increasing different opportunities for leadership uh, ended up kind of leading large, large uh, programs for organizations that were doing public sector work. Um, eventually wanted to shift kind of away from the public sector side and into more of the industry side and find opportunities for doing more like leadership and development coaching, uh, which is where I am now. I'm with a consulting firm and I'm working with a large client in data and technology that uh, I'm, I'm so excited about because I'm getting to be part of them building out a model for culture and leadership and coaching their senior and uh, more junior leaders and how to apply that both in communication and behavior. That is so amazing. Things I'm really passionate about. Yes, yeah. yes. I know um, because this is a podcast, so it's um, not visual. Smiling the whole time you were talking about that, just so everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's very fresh too. So I'm, I'm riding on a lot of that energy of having yeah. just kind of create, co-created this with some of them. That's, that's absolutely amazing. So um, I guess I should have done a full disclosure at the beginning that um, not only do we have a friendship, but you used to be my manager and I, mm -hmm. uh, you allowed me to learn from you and lessons I'm still carrying forward. So I say that because um, one full disclosure for the listeners, but then uh, two, because what you said about getting the computer science degree, having worked with you, definitely see that as a benefit and as something I have taken um, and I'm, I'm trying to expand upon that as well. But in terms of overall leadership, I think that's so important that you don't have to be, uh, I believe your website says the, the Jill of all trades, but you don't have to be like <laughs> in the weeds for each thing and be that's like, right. oh, I can take over each one of these tasks, but you have to know enough to be dangerous and support your team. That's right. Yes. You, you can't be an expert on everything. And especially as leaders, we tend to be working with large sets of very skilled people who are skilled across a huge number of skill sets. And there's no way for us to be experts in all of that. Um, so that's not the goal, but the goal is to be able to lead effectively and earn respect and give respect to the people that you are co-creating with. Yeah. And that requires, if not, you know, it doesn't mean you have to go get a degree in everything that your people are doing, but asking those questions of, hey, help me understand like what your process is. Show me how amazing your skills are, right? Let me gain that appreciation and gain some language so that then when we're talking about deadlines or deliverables or what has to happen when we, we don't have enough time, then I have a respect for what it takes mm. to do what I'm asking you to do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect, perfect sense. Yes. Um, so, so I wanted to ask then, um, just kind of stay on the tech side because I know you're also a, um, an active coach and I do obviously want to get to that. 
Um, so did you know you wanted to be in a position to lead others? I mean, obviously it seems like leadership was just kind of in your blood and, and entrepreneurship. I can't say that word. Um, business, yes, business smarts. Business smarts. Yeah. Um, was, was in your blood and, you know, uh, so when I say in your blood, that, that to me says, you know, a natural thing, but did, did you know, going through your experience coming from China and, um, you know, all that you did in middle school and high school, uh, going into tech that, that you wanted to be a leader in the tech industry? Yeah, I did. I, I saw it as kind of a launching pad into uh, positions where I would have the opportunity to create and cast vision and enroll people into that and make impact. You know, I think at the time, I knew that was something I wanted. I might not have had the language for what that would look like. Um, but I knew there was something in me that longed to be part of creating communities that were driven towards something of purpose. And so while I, I also really appreciated the individual contributor side, like part of what got me into computer science was my love of spreadsheets. <laughs> I love spreadsheets. <laughs> I think I had my first one in like middle school when I was doing the, the doll clothes company um, because I was tracking like what sold more and what could I, you know, adjust pricing on and what should I stop making because it wasn't selling well. I think, I think um, Microsoft may come to you for uh, an endorsement, like here's their commercial for Excel. <laughs> then. I don't yeah. have too many people say so there definitely was, you know, a natural like desire and pull towards some of the technical stuff. And when I took my first computer science class, I remember just being amazed that I could take a photograph and make it look like a drawing mm. just by iterating through the pixels and applying certain logic. It, yeah. was, it was beautiful. It was fun. It was, it was interesting. And so while I knew I wanted to do more than um, be an individual contributor on teams, or I wanted to do something different. Um, I had a love for the process and for the, the makerhood that is part of it. I tell people sometimes I got into computer science by way of costume design, <laughs> because I would, I, earlier on, right before my tech career, uh, I would draft out and draw these pictures of these really complicated costumes that I wanted to create. And then it was a reverse engineering process of how do I create that going backwards step by step until I have a piece of fabric laying on the floor and I'm cutting a shape out. And software is the same thing. You're like, mm. what is the experience I'm trying to create for the end user? What is the, the problem I'm trying to solve? And then you go backwards until you're, you're writing a for loop in code. Mm. And so that, I just loved that process as well. So huge respect for people who are so much more skillful at that than I am. I got a taste um, enough to be dangerous to yeah. your point um, and enough to kind of shift in another direction. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So can you talk to us about starting a nonprofit? What is involved in that? Even, even outside of what the nonprofit is for, like as a leader, um, did you find it challenging? Cause it's something new. Um, oh <laughs> your face goodness. says yeah, yes. Challenging, not an understatement. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have an incredible amount of respect for people who start work in the nonprofit space, who spend their careers in that space it is, it is challenging at a soul level that mm. I have not really experienced in any other part of my career. Um, so for me, the, the journey was uh, while I was in East Asia and working with uh, a variety of populations, I um, had the opportunity to come kind of close to a, a group of Pakistani refugees. And I was, at the time, I had had this idea around um, taking old clothes that people are donating and taking them apart and turning them into other products. Mm. That was something I did just on my own as a creative expression. I would take old clothes and turn them into cool other things, bags and quilts and aprons and totes and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and so I, I knew that that was a really powerful idea and that um, people were more likely to donate clothing than they were to donate money, mm. which is an unfortunate reality of the nonprofit industry. It is very hard to get people to um, give money and it's, it's even harder to get people to give their time. Yeah, especially um, right now. Yes, yes, especially yeah. right now. Um, so for me, it was this pairing of, I had this really cool idea that I thought would really serve a population well. And I was um, interested in finding like a group of people that would genuinely benefit from that idea. Um, and so, you know, different streams kind of came together. I got exposed to this group of people um, and I was in no way prepared for what that would do to me personally. Mm. Um, it was so not about like the, the business idea or the, the, you know, kind of clothing decomposition idea. It became... Um, it just this transformative, uh, heartbreaking, burdening, like freeing experience of literally like spending half of my time living with this community. Mm. I would take a bus for several hours out to the city that they lived in. I would stay in their homes. I would eat with them. I would uh, make these products with them. I would take them back to the main city that I was from and then sell those and bring the money back into the community. Wow. And that cycle of actually doing life with this group of people, of hearing not just once, but many times, like what their, what their origin stories were, the parts that they were willing to share with me, um, of participating in their culture and um, being exposed to very different ideas about gender roles and like how homes operated and finding that so many of my biases were just so completely wrong mm. that there was an incredible amount of love and respect and beauty in these cultures and in these homes. Um, and the extent to which they opened their lives and their hearts to me was was forever changing over these past uh, 10 years. That's um, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But all of that shift, like that shift created fundamental change in me. And that was what launched this sense of like, I want this to be something that like is not just about me or isn't doesn't just like live or die with me. And so um, hence the the kind of starting of this grassroots organization. And I say, I, I kind of make a distinction between a grassroots organization, which is a couple of people huddled together with like a notebook and a nonprofit organization. Mm. There's a, there's a gulf between those sometimes. Um, so it started as the first, it was, it was me and whoever I could get who was uh, also moved by this community and also willing to commit because there are lots of people who are interested in almost like the tourism style of nonprofit work where it's like, oh, there's this really interesting different culture. I'm going to come out once, share that my perspective with them, kind of taste those foods and then never come out again. Mm. And so I became quite burned out and cynical, you can tell a little, um, in, in that experience. And so I became quite protective of that community and only really inviting people in who were, who were genuinely willing to commit mm. to that practice and to that effort. So I, I was fortunate to find um, one other person in particular, my, my partner in nonprofithood. Um, and when I left the East Asia region, uh, she stayed and continued with that organization. Wow. And so it was in the evolution kind of under her leadership as the director of the organization, I joined the, the board at that time um, that we went through the 501c3 uh, registration process. And that is a, a beast of a process. I think it was uh, probably two years from when stuff was originally filed um, wow. to when we actually achieved that status. Um, and so all of that in between where you're telling people like, yes, your donations retroactively will be tax deductible, right? Like um, you're going through all of the steps of like sharing what your purpose is, what your vision is, what your organizational structure is. You have to have a board of directors. You have to have a, a budget system. You have to have like core areas of focus. Um, that whole process of defining it was so important to taking what was like bubbling up and, and 
in our hearts and in the, the actual work that we were doing and codifying it. And then we had about uh, maybe like a five-year run of operating as a 501c3 and working in those spaces and building out programs and then seeing programs shrink and then building them out in different areas. It's this ever-changing flow. Yeah. Um, and then because of some changes in the um, legal environment that we were operating in, uh, we were kind of forced to, to close down as our own nonprofit because of the particular population that we served. Uh, but during that transition, and that was a really, of course, challenging transition for this thing that so many of us had poured so much of ourselves into, um, we found a, an organization that was able to operate in that legal climate uh, that could pick up some of the work that we were doing. And so we we transferred a lot of our funds, a lot of our, our um, like the structure that we had built up and volunteers into that other organization. That's incredible. Yeah, I take I, two main things I take. One is um, because I was in, involved in setting up a nonprofit, but we were um, a child to the parent. So it took like six yeah. months, not two years. And I thought that was exhausting. So good night with two years. Um, but yeah, the, the emotional tax that must have had on all of you to, to this thing that you've worked, I'm sure, blood, sweat and tears, exhaustion, joy, and you know, all of the emotions in one. And then in the end, have to shift it over. But thank, I mean, thank goodness that you found um, an organization to shift it to, that it wasn't just like, yeah. well, this is all gone now. Well, yeah, yes, I am grateful for that transition. You know, I also think it's really important um, for all of us in, in our, our lives, which can include like professional careers, you know, wherever those exist in our families and our relationships, that things end, mm. everything ends, our lives end, our businesses end, our nonprofits end. And if we stake the success or what we will call a successful you know effort on whether or not it persists over a long period of time then that is losing so much of the nuance of what impact we can create mm. things end and they still were valuable things end and they still have impact things end and they still create a reverberating effect in the world even if it's not in that form because influence persists relationships persist See, so i think this it, is why i want to interview you <laughs> Well, I think we, we get a false sense of like failure sometimes when we go, oh, it ended. That mm. relationship didn't work out. I just wasted those years of my life. And it's never that simple yeah. because we are changed and that lasts. So it, I think uh, it, because I want to be respectful of your time. So let's switch to the active coach. And then I do have some, yeah. of course, more questions um, before we get to those final two. So you are an active coach. Can you share with us what that is? Um, your website, by the way, is amazing. Um, oh, thanks. So, yeah, if you share, um, because some people may not know what 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 that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am I am a co-active professional coach. Um, what that means is that I partner with clients, usually one-on-one, -on -one, although I also do this work in organizations as well, um, to help them connect really deeply to their sense of purpose, to their values, to what it is that they want to create in the world and what behaviors and beliefs they need to make that happen. Mm. So a really helpful way to think about coaching is it is a collaborative, co-creative relationship between someone who is like looking to create something in the world, the client, or in their own lives, and then someone who brings tools and perspective and championing and their own intuition to that process. Yeah. So coaching is not mentoring, coaching is not consulting, and coaching is not therapy. It is distinct from all of those things. Um, because as a coach, I'm not giving advice. I may offer perspective at times, but that's really rare. It's usually around what am I noticing in the client? What is mm -hmm. it that I see about what their connection to value is and what they want to create and helping them make that real? So it's not advice. Um, it's also very present and future looking. 
So it's not spending a lot of time looking at the past. Like we don't talk a lot about your childhood experiences and the coaching um, relationship. Those might come up if it is something that is present in your current reality. Mm. And so we focus a lot on where are you now and where do you want to go? Um, and a lot less on where have you been and what brought you to this point. And both are valuable. So, yeah. you know, I, I'll actively say I have a coach and I have a therapist. Yeah. Um, both perspectives are really important. Coaching just focuses in a particular direction. Wow. That's, in, that's incredible. And I saw like, um, you have like mixed media arts on your website yeah. and all. So I, yes. I, I, um, now hearing your origin story, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I do a lot less sewing these days, a lot less of the like costume or, or uh, sewing machine work, but yes, I, that has shifted into a heavily influenced by fabric and textiles um, use of mixed media art. God, so that's incredible. that is absolutely a, a way that I express and process what's happening in my life. Like I can kind of track through some of the pieces I have on my website and others that I have around my home. And it, it emerges out of a season of my life where there was some deep work happening. And, and I found ways to express that. Yes, in words, I'm a big time journaler. So I have, I have literally stacks and stacks of journals from the past 10 years. Um, but there's also a really important element of communicating that is not verbal. And so finding ways to express through making things with our hands, finding ways to express ourselves in the movement of our bodies, in the experience of a meal and whatever that kind of nonverbal type of expression is, is so important because we are more than people who say words. We are mm. humans that have complex bodies and systems that, that are nonverbal. So mixed media art is a way that I embrace the nonverbal part of being human. Uh, I love that. I was going to say, yeah, I scream sing while I'm cooking my boy's food, but that's verbal, <laughs> Brittany. Um, but my husband um, does things with his hands. He, he he would love to be like the Nick Offerman of the Southeast Oh yeah, um, with the woodworking. Um, and he just doesn't have time to go in there and do it. Like if we won the lottery, I would probably go to law school and try to work for some civil rights organization while he is going to be in a studio that he has built with our lottery winnings making people things yeah. out of wood. So I, 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 I love, I love, um, I have a jealousy and envy for people that have some artistic ability that they can draw or, or anything like that. Like I try to write, but I feel like I have ADD with it. Well, actually that's a really important part of creativity though. There's a, uh, someone who's been a big influence on me, Julia Cameron. Um, she is most known for her work, uh, in the book, the artist's way. And there's several books that came after that. I'm gonna write it down. Um, but yeah, it's fabulous. Uh, she has a part of that um, approach to creativity. It, it is a, I think she calls it like a self-healing approach to kind of awakening our own creativity. And part of a, the, the key, if you only remember one thing from her work, it's called morning pages. And it is literally every morning just coming up in stream of consciousness, writing mm. three pages um, without regard for the quality of it, you know, what you say, you could, you could literally write, and I've done this before. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write and just write that for three pages. Yeah. But the process of making the things that we are experiencing, like come through us, come through us and out in some yeah. form, it creates a clear path for when, when the, the, the meaningful creativity, when the stuff that like comes together, when it's something that we are proud of, or that we can share with others, like that only comes when we have a clear pathway to what's yeah. happening inside ourselves. I call it avoiding emotional constipation. <laughs> when we don't experience and express our, our emotions, we become emotionally constipated. Mm. And so whatever it is, if it's anger, if it's love, if it's joy, if it's depression, like finding a way verbally or not to express it and to actually feel it yeah. helps us move through it and into something different. 
Um, so my assumption, I have an assumption of how you're going to answer this question, but I don't want to tell you. Um, <laughs> Sir. When you, so the, the, you know, the morning, you know, you wake up and here's your stream of consciousness. Is that like through a notes app on your phone or your laptop? Or is that break out a pen and paper type thing? It is. I am a very tactile person. So, you know, for those on the podcast, I'm holding up one journal. Let's see, just within reach. I have two three still region uh, <laughs> <laughs> <journals>. <laughs> all within like two feet of me and there's a whole other stack across That's the incredible. room um, and behind me so uh, I'm very tactile I like to actually write it down I know many people who prefer to do it digitally as well um, but for me it's it's a process of getting my favorite pens out opening you know mm. these different books that I use for different purposes and then just letting it come out that's amazing as a left-hander my favorite pen is one that doesn't smudge all over me and that's yet go. to be found. Uh, so, so I would like to ask because you have this um, the coactive coaching. Forgive me for leaving out the co before, and then of course your leadership role professionally. I assume that those are mixed for you. Like when you do having experienced your team building, and you know sometimes it's about um, my favorite one ever was what kind of food if you were a food what kind would you be? Um, <laughs> Did I ask that? You did. My favorite one. <laughs> that sounds like me. Yes, because uh, yeah. sometimes it's important to take, even though it's a it's a team meeting, and especially in something like software development, where it can often be a cold industry, you need yes. to breathe every now yes. and again, and kind of, and sometimes you have to force your team to exhale. Yeah, not um, everyone liked those questions. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the answers were amazing. I think the 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 one I loved the most. Um, because I, I just eat food to survive. So I don't know. <laughs> um, so my question is, is I, and I guess it goes, it goes to more of this. Do you carry over your leadership from your work, uh, you know, pro- professionally and, and co co uh, coactive? Is that ever carried over, um, you know, to your personal life without getting into your personal life, but the things that you're doing, how do you separate that? Because like you said, for the nonprofit work, that's emotional, that's exhausting, physically and emotionally, like all of those things. And even good stress is stress. Um, right. So how do you approach separating those to make sure that you're still effective as a leader, as a coach, yes, as a mentor, um, but that you don't go home completely exhausted? Mm, yeah, it's such an important question. Because, um, you know, we, the society will kind of swing back and forth between life work separation, life work integration, mm. life work balance. And kind of every couple of years, I feel like we're coming up with some different term to try to describe the challenge of these, you know, kind of dual worlds or, or even more um, that we live in. Um, for me, there's a couple of pieces to this. One is I do not separate leadership into different parts of my life. I am not a leader at work in one particular way and a leader as a coach in one particular way and then not in other places. I I have to show up as a leader in my life, period, wherever my life takes me. When my life is sitting in the morning, picking through one of my journals and dumping out whatever's in my head or in my heart, I have to show up as a leader in that space. Mm. When I show up with a client, we are both showing up as leaders and I'm helping evoke that leadership from the client. Um, when I show up in, in my job and work in the work I do with organizations, um, I have to show up as a leader. And the, the values that enable me to show up that way or that, that influence how I show up, those are the same across those dimensions. Because the thing that we sometimes confuse is we'll say something like, what are your professional values and what are your personal values? Mm. And those things are not different. When we observationally look at our life, and, and this is a, a distinction I make with um, both my coaching and my consulting work. 
when we talk about values, we need to make a distinction between observational values and aspirational values. Observably, we can look at our lives and go, based on the choices that I am making, based on the foods that I eat, based on where I spend my time, based on where I send my power by spending my money, what are the things that are actually important to me? And those are observably our values. Mm. And those are the things that I really work with clients and with organizations to identify, to celebrate, to lean into, because those are the things we aren't trying to shift ourselves into something else. Sometimes we'll say, oh, I should value integrity. Like that's going to be my core professional value, but it's so disconnected from mm. what we actually spend our time on. And when we focus on what we already observably value and we like lean into that and we find out how do I apply my value for like deep connection? Cause that's one of mine at work, at home, with my clients, then the behaviors that come out of that are consistent with who I am as a person. Wow. So part of this is recognizing that, you know, and this is maybe pulling from the life work integration, like these things are not separate. The way we show up in life is the way we show up at home and the way we show up at work. And the more we can find those similarities, the more powerful our impact is. The other piece of it, to your point though, of how do you not come home stressed with all the things <laughs> is, is recognizing, you know, there's a cadence to everything. Mm. So some of the work that I do professionally right now is agile coaching. So agile is a, many people will describe it different ways. Um, I will say agile is a way of approaching the way that we do work that is centered in values that honors flow and that has regular structured reflection. And there's all sorts of agile methodologies, scrum, Kanban that kind of exist in the software world, everything in between and that people use to get at that core. So some of the work that I do with that, I think is really relevant to how do we like create the natural separation that we do need to not be stressed out all the time at yeah. home. And it's, it's forcing us to recognize there is a natural cadence to life. So for me, I get up and I do this journaling work most mornings. Um, you get up and you take a shower, you have some breakfast or some people skip breakfast. You get the coffee before you go into your next meeting. People have their nighttime routines, whatever those are. We have a natural cadence to our days, to our weeks, and to our months. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes not. Yeah. But we have that cadence. And it's actually kind of built into us biologically. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to drink water. And so our bodies force us into a sense of cadence. And so when we honor that about our life as well, when we recognize, okay, I'm not just needing cadence biologically, I also need cadence emotionally. Mm. I need cadence professionally. Then it's this ability to say, there is a season of the day where I'm like ramping up with what are the concerns and the actions that my professional life needs. And I'm deep in that. And then there's part of that cadence, which is coming out of it. It's landing it. It's capturing what do I need to remember for tomorrow? And part of showing up as a leader in life in general, right? And showing up as a leader for myself is being able to say that can wait. Mm. That is tomorrow's challenge. And now my body needs attention. I need to go for a run. Now my family needs attention. I need to connect with them about their day. My society needs attention. I need to go vote, mm -hmm. right? And so part of showing up as a leader is being able to force rank the relative importance and the relative value of the activities in our day. And it's this interleaving of saying the work stuff might be higher value during core business hours, but then the evening stuff is higher value for the work that I do to be whole as a person. Mm. I love that. And, and yes, um, also, uh, as you know, but some people may not working in software, yes, the severity and prioritization of things don't always, that's not the same thing. So right. um, to separate it out that yes, yes, you're absolutely agreed is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
I think we're right there at it. So I, I would like to ask you, as, as, as I have on every podcast, so I was going to start with the, the last question about the leaders being the last question, but now I'm fascinated with people's answers already. Um, so I have two last questions. So sure. I know that you are very aware with the organ, um, organizational leadership paradigm, you know, um, servant, transformational, transactional leadership. I had a guest recently uh, say situational leadership that she described herself as, have you ever thought how, how you might fit into that? Um, and whether or not you've thought about that, is there one or more, because I don't think they're necessarily siloed, um, that you would like to yeah. emulate to be, to be or become that kind of leader? Yeah. So I'll say the first time I've really looked at this in detail was a few days ago. <laughs> <laughs> so some prompting from uh, knowing that this would be one of the questions. Yeah, so I'm um, glad I sent it out to you. <laughs> lovely. Yeah. You know, so I think for me in looking at those descriptions of, of kind of these styles of leadership, um, observably, right, when I just reflect on how I already have shown up, not necessarily aspirationally, um, it's, it's some of this overlap between this transformational and servant leader. So, so much of the work that I do and, and the way that I want my professional, my coaching, my personal life to flow is based in genuinely, what is the world we are trying to create? And if I can't draw that line between the world I want to live in, the world I want people I love to live in, and the work that I'm doing, there is something missing. And so some of what I do, and, and I think how this lines up with some of the transformational leader approaches, I draw that line for other people. I help them find the connection between the work that they are doing day to day, or how to change the work that they're doing day to day, so that it has that connection to the, the world we want to live in. Mm. You know, and that's all about casting a vision. That's about enrolling people in what is possible, right? And it is, it is absolutely about creating something bigger than ourselves. The servant leadership approach comes in um, very heavily in the way that I think I act in these settings. Something people I work with know I say a lot is it has to serve you too. So when we talk about designing a process and I say, hey, does this actually make your life better? Because mm -hmm. if it doesn't, we need to keep working on it because it can't just be a top down. I'm going to use this as a cudgel to make you do what I want you to do. It has to be, hey, here's a need that I have. What's a need that you have? And let's put those on the table and design our business, our process, our cadence to meet those needs. Yeah. And so that's very much paying attention to what, what are the needs and the desires of the people that I'm working with? You know, I think people I've worked with, and, and you're one of them, so you can, you know, keep me honest with some of this. Um, I have had long lasting relationships with, with many people from past jobs and environments I've been in. And, you know, from the feedback that they've given me, so much of it is I genuinely care. Mm -hmm. like for many people, I think I was the first manager who, um, not necessarily the first manager who genuinely cared, the first manager who made sure they knew that. Yes. Because the key is, and, and this is a, really important distinction between what makes people managers and what makes them leaders, that good intentions are not enough. Mm. And I think many of us, those who are engaging in the really important relearning, unlearning work of facing what we need to do as anti-racists of what is happening in the world around us is an acknowledgement that my good intentions don't mean anything if they don't manifest in behavior, if they don't manifest in the flow of my money toward organizations that are making changes in mm. the flow of my time, that good intentions, all they ever do is make us feel good about ourselves. Yeah. So it has to show up in behavior. And I think that was what made it different for some of the people that I've led is they knew I cared. They knew yeah. in so many ways Absolutely. that I cared. I mean, it was like deep in my guts. <laughs> 
And so, you know, wherever that makes me fall in the paradigm, I, I genuinely care about and love my teams. Yes. And I know it. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And having, like you said, we have worked on the same team. I know I'm, I was not the only person in that. So that's absolutely true. Um, may I share with what I think? Yes. I know, I know this is about, this is about you, but um, so I think with IT work, you have to be transactional. Um, so there's definitely that aspect of it, but I would agree with the other two. Um, I don't think that like people think like Dr. King, transformational leader. Well, he had to be transactional too. And he, and any leader should be a servant leader too. So to me, like there's always a mixture, right? So it's kind of a trick question <laughs> that I sure. do for people. Um, but, but yeah, so I completely agree, but I would say like the transactional is definitely there because you have to do that. You know, there are, mm-hmm. there are, like you, like you said, prioritizing what can wait. Um, that's, right. that's transactional on it on its own. And even something like checking, like check the budget has been, <laughs> you know, approved. Yeah. That's a transactional thing, but it's still something that has to be doing to do. And like you said, that's, that's managerial over leadership, over leadership as far as like, if you zoom out, but you know, it's still all part of it. Is, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and some of those are the the nuts and bolts of how it happens. And this is where um, good intentions that manifest in behaviors shift the experience of that transaction, mm. right? The transaction can be emotionless. It can be, hey, I'll pay you this amount of money if you do this part of work for me. Or it can be imbued with meaning and purpose and still have that top part. I'm still going to pay you a certain amount of money to yeah. do a certain set of tasks for me. But now we have a sense of connection around purpose in the world that we want to create and what is possible for ourselves when we engage that way. And so absolutely transactional is like the, the minimum, like, of course, it's part of it. It's what are we wrapping around right. it? How are we executing those transactions? Do people know that we care while we are engaging in transaction with them? Yeah. And I love that too, because often, um, and it's not unique to, to software um, development, but, you know, people are asked to do things like work over time and that's mm-hmm. time away from their, their, their lives, you know, that outside of work. Mm-hmm. So to have that, that trust and to know that, okay, I know she doesn't want to ask me to work Mm -hmm. extra, but she has to, and she's going to make sure I'm okay. That's a very important thing there. Um, Part of of two, this piece is how vulnerable we're willing to be as leaders, mm. you know, and, and there's different levels of that. Like I do not share every piece of my story with every person that I work with. Like I do with my, my dear friends or my partner. Um, But I'm pretty transparent as a leader. So when I am feeling the squeeze, because we squeeze down. Mm. When someone is squeezed and they have power or influence over someone else, they tend to squeeze down. And then that person squeezes down. And that can just happen. And we can have like rough feelings about all of that, or we can start to communicate. And, and I aspire to do this. And I know I've done it sometimes and I'm still learning how to do this well, but to share with people, Hey, here's what's happening for me. Here's the, the pressure that, you know, I'm trying to navigate around or the decisions I'm having to make. Like, what do you think about this? And helping them understand sometimes those requests that might be tr- more transactional in nature, that they are coming from a, a person, a place, yeah. a set of experiences. Building empathy bi-directionally is an mm. important part of building that trust. Now, that doesn't mean that leaders should expect the people that they lead to manage their emotions for them or to fully understand that experience. No, we are often in positions where we have to ask people to do things and they won't fully understand the story. And, yeah. and you know, part of our job is to self-manage around that. Um, but being transparent wherever we can helps people understand the bigger picture. Yeah, I love that. I immediately thought um, of of an experience I had where um, a button was the wrong color 
Um, and we found out because we were sitting in a stakeholders meeting and one person was colorblind. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Um, so we spent all this time on resolution size and where's the laptop that this is going to be used on and all of these things. But no one ever thought, like, what's our color library? Because it's just yeah. there. The content catalog is there, right? So to go back to, I remember going back to the developer. I mean, like, he has to spend hours recoding to fix this one color. Um, but it was on all the, the um, I'll say features. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but because this was a person that did not have buy-in and it stopped at a paycheck, he understood the whole mission. Um, and I approached it as how does your part fit into the whole, you know, yeah. code, feature, product, mission. Tell me the story from the end user perspective. Tell me the story from your perspective. Tell me the story from my perspective, from, from the PMO perspective on the customer side. So because they knew that he was like, well, yeah, this sucks, but okay. You know, whereas, whereas, somebody that would stop at a paycheck, they're going to gripe about that. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Um, yeah. I was saying like what you, what you said reminded me of that, that immediately popped in my head. That's I, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to ask, because you've, you've alluded to this many times, um, you know, events of the world uh, happening and you know, right here at home um, as, as, as well. And it's hard. I'm very aware of that is my privilege that I can turn off the news um, and I do like when my nine-year-old is sitting on the couch, I, there are things he cannot see. I will explain them to him. Um, but there's things like I'm going to try to protect that innocence as long as I can as his mom. Um, and whether or not that's right or wrong, it's my decision um, right now. But, you know, as a leader, and I guess this is more toward, you know, the companies you work for. I, I, um, because we would all like to work for, I assume, companies, organizations that support the, you know, the missions that we are, are passionate about, but that's not always reality. And that's where you do have some people just like, I'm just here for my paycheck. Don't ask me to play in these team building games. Don't ask me to work extra. I hit eight hours. I'm Fred Flintstone and I'm out the door kind of thing. So how, as a leader, do you approach that? Because I think it lends to these events going on in the world because, you know, oh, it's easier for me to go to this store over here than drive an extra 30 minutes to support this other store that whose mission I believe in. Um, and I know that's not a direct correlation between those two. So um, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on one or both of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's really important, especially for, for anyone who is a leader, which I argue is everyone. Leaders are people who create the worlds that they exist in. So we are all leaders. We may be doing that well or poorly. Um, but for every person, there's that choice around what will I make real in my life as a result of what's happening around me? And how does that show up? You know, as we were kind of talking about, like for me, personal life coaching in my professional world. Um, so a lot of it for me always starts with self-leadership. So when I talk about leadership with organizations or with my clients, I always ground it in the leadership that we are able to embody with others will always flow from or be a subset of the way that we show up as leaders in our own lives. So it has to start with self. And that also, when we start with self and we go, how am I leading myself? What are the behaviors and the beliefs that are part of that? Then when we actually go to talk about that with other people, we can ground that in, here's what I'm learning. Here's how I'm trying to show up differently or how I'm shifting my behaviors. So I'll start there as well, that what, what this has done for me and my personal self-leadership. So 
a really important part of my cadence um, is what I call my daily disciplines. And, and I, I'll put like air quotes around daily. It's, it's mostly daily. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> check the box every single day. Um, but I have a, a, a tool, we'll call it, I call Brem's Canary. And it is a made up acronym, except for the last word there, uh, that kind of encapsulates the things that I try to do on a daily basis to protect my own wellness or to um, promote that. So every day I do something for my bodily health, my relational health, my emotional health, my material health, Mm. and my spiritual health. And then I do something to make my inner canary sing. And this is based on the idea of the canary in the coal mine. We have to listen for the singing bird to know if we are still safe or if there is something toxic in the air. Mm, I love that. So this is, I checked back through my journals and uh, I think like this month or maybe somewhere in these couple of months this summer is the three year anniversary of like the creation of Brem's Canary for me. So it's been a a practice, a semi-daily practice now for years. And that has been transformative. Having these small things that I do every day, because part of what is really important about this tool and what I uh, do when I use this with coaching clients is these activities can be done within 10 minutes. Like the goal is not that this is some huge barrier that I have to spend hours every day on this self-care or self-wellness. It's if I'm in a, in a bind, I can do it in less than 10 minutes. And so there should be no day where I can't kind of practice these daily disciplines. And because that the practice of daily discipline is so transformative, that has been how I've been approaching the shift in um, kind of what is happening in the world around me and how that shows up differently in my life. So a few examples, um, part of my daily cadence now is to do anti-racism work. And so right now that shows up as um, I'm in two different groups that are working through the workbook, uh, Me and White Supremacy by mm. Leila Saad, um, an incredibly challenging, um, invigorating, depressing like book to work through. But part of how I'm shifting, you know, the way I show up in the world is this is not a time of a moment. Um, This is not something I'm going to power through and read all of it in a couple of days and not do the journaling work, that this is a daily practice. Mm. And part of that daily practice also is recognizing when there is restitution to make. So part of what has come up for me in the process of doing this work is um, understanding as someone who grew up privileged and white and in mostly white environments in the South, I benefited and I can actually count numbers. I benefited financially from a white supremacist culture. Mm. And so I'm doing some work to kind of calculate that with interest and with um, inflation to figure out what is the amount of money for that particular set of activities that is a debt I owe. And so some of that like daily practice is making the list, figuring out the numbers. It's figuring out who I need to communicate with to share like, hey, what I think, you know, we created, which had a lot of things that to be proud of also furthered a white supremacist culture. Mm. So it's, it's engaging in those things. So when I'm doing that work in my personal life, then you expand out to a circle. When I'm talking to dear friends and we're talking through the effect on us of the events in the world, I can say, wow, like I've really been reflecting because of the work of these amazing like people of color who are, who are teaching and educating and I'm, I'm shutting up and listening from then I can go, this is what I'm uncovering in my life. What are you uncovering? Yeah. And it becomes really powerful, positive peer pressure. And then in my organization, I can go and say, hey, I'm doing this work in my own personal life. What are we doing as an organization? How are we, for example, in um, our mentoring environment? So I'm, I'm really proud of a lot of the diversity efforts of the consulting firm that I work for. I think they're, they're taking a really strong stand and I'm seeing a lot of action that is coming from that. Part of my role is to help hold accountability with that as well as I show up in those spaces. 
So we've started a um, mentoring program for more senior consultants to work with more junior black consultants. Because of the demographics of the consulting industry in general and the demographics in our firm, that means without exception, every mentor will be white and every person being mentored will be black. Wow. Because of that design of the program. So not necessarily, like there, there's lots of problematic things to consider with that. Great intentions, right? Yeah. But part of like my, what I have to do in the work that I'm doing as an anti-racist is to say, hey, when and where and how frequently are we talking about the role of tone policing for mentors working with junior people of color? And where are we, like, at what point or how frequently um, will the mentors be trained in unconscious bias and an unconscious uh, promotion of white supremacy in these environments? Because there is a natural power dynamic that is already there when we say a white senior person will mentor a more junior black person. And so part of how we do this work responsibly is we challenge, we name, we talk about those power dynamics and we don't just let it happen. Right. Right. So lots of great things that I see companies doing and part of the way that we engage as as empowered and and um, like powerful citizens in this community as leaders is to then say, great, and what about this, right? And how are we addressing that? So those are a couple of the ways that like, I'm trying to do some of this work and turn it turn it outside, like yeah. share what I'm learning and use that as a platform to, to encourage and um, solicit and demand action. Yeah, I love that you've mentioned a few times um, that to be a leader, you have to lead yourself as well. You have yes. to do do the work and, you know, whether that be um, personally to, you know, if you're depressed or um, on, on the professional side, or as you said, you know, they're not necessarily here's one and here's the other. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, a, a friend of mine, when I was going through my divorce years ago, I was so worried about my boy, right? I just, just bubs, bubs, bubs. That's all I could worry about. And, um, and I, so obviously going through a divorce, I was not doing well. And um, I remember she said, Brittany, he'll be okay if you're okay. Your mask first. And like, I yes. wish I could get that engraved on something to put on my mantle. Like yes. all these, all these years later, um, I think about that often. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And so I turned more inward instead of just really overprotecting him is what it, cause he got a little spoiled. Um, and um, so I love that you've, you've, you've highlighted that several times um, that you have to take care of yourself to be not just like, a functioning human, right? But mm-hmm. um, as you said, we're all leaders. So, and especially if you find yourself in that leadership role, whether it be through nonprofit work or or your your coactive coaching or professionally, you know what what have you? As a parent, you have to take care of yourself. I, I really love that. Yeah, absolutely. So, can you share with us the meaning behind your last name, Silfra? Yeah, so it's an Icelandic name, actually. It's a yes. place in Iceland um, that holds the two tectonic plates that cause all the volcanic activity on the wow. island. Um, so it is it is a lake. I had the opportunity to be at it last summer. In fact, that's how I, I came to know the place. And um, after uh, doing some inquiry around like uh, sensitivity for cultural appropriation, because I want to be really mindful of that, um, it was such an empowering and moving um, experience, really a life-changing trip in a lot of ways. And um, for me, the name while it literally means silvery, um, for me, it means expansiveness and range and Mm. the embrace of complexity and clarity that our lives are filled with all of this literal like volcanic rock that comes into the the sulfur lake. Um, but the lake is clear. It is so incredibly clear because it has traveled through hard terrain for over 30 years. Mm. And it comes to that place with, with purity and clarity. Oh, I love that. I bet that was gorgeous. You and the, this is fine dog. 
<laughs> well, that's right. Yes, me and me and the stuffed animal. We made a we made quite a journey. Um, I did. Ha- I do have one more question. I'm gonna put you right okay. on the spot. Um, okay. When does your book come out? Your leadership book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to, you know, come up with ideas and write it first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep you to I, it. I would say within the next five years. <laughs> All I ask for is a signed copy. I mean, okay. that's all I ask for. Great. Send <laughs> um, the name ideas in. Um, so I would like to ask you, the time is upon us. I am so excited. Um, <laughs> we made it. <laughs> to, um, to share with us three leaders uh, that you admire, that you wish to emulate, the you know biggest lessons learned, what ha- for whatever reason, three uh, people that, uh, three leaders that you would like to share. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll break the rules a little bit. It'll be like categorical. Yes. <laughs> so when I think about like the influences on me too. Um, so the first one that I want to name is actually a book, um, Crucial Conversations. If we embody that as, as an individual, as a leader, um, when I think about like the things that have made me the leader that I am or the things that I, um, you know, aspire to emulate. Uh, being able to define what is the mutual purpose for what we're going into, even for this conversation, Brittany, together, what our purpose is in having it. Um, kind of this idea of the more that we listen and we can get curious about what's happening in another person, the more we can identify, are we moving towards silence or violence? How do we notice that mm-hmm. in ourselves? How do we notice that in someone else? How do we bring ourselves together toward kind of sharing the difference between fact and feeling or fact and interpretation? Um, and then move toward action at the end. That structure has transformed the way that I lead. Um, and I would literally, for uh, for several years of, of kind of being in some initial positions of authority, um, I would write that out when I knew I had to have a hard conversation and be like, okay, mm. what's our mutual purpose? Okay, what are the facts and what's my interpretation of those? So if that book were a person walking around, I'd just be like, hey, let's go all <laughs> listen, learn. <laughs> Because the world would change. If our conversations yeah. could all follow some of those structures, the world would change. Mm. So that, that's one of them. That's the first one. I love that. Or, yes. If it's okay, can I go beyond three? I've got like five different things. Yes. Great. Okay. The so floor the is yours. One, <laughs> the second one um, was one of my, one of my early bosses, um, Sheila Isbell. She was at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Um, and she was the, the probably, well, for one thing, I think the first a woman leader that I had the opportunity to work for in technology, you know, and as a woman who worked in technology um, to other, any other women working in technology, we know that our numbers are few. <laughs> yeah. You were the first one for me. There we yeah. go. Yeah. It's a small. Yeah. And I can't name the number of times that um, in the tech industry, I've been the only woman in the room or the only senior woman in the room or the only woman with influence or power in the room. Right. That, that is such a common experience. And so I had the opportunity for about two years to be part of a leadership team that was for women. Wow. That the whole leadership team was for women. And it was me and three women of color. Oh, did you just and walk in every day with a big grin? <laughs> sometimes we did. Like there were probably two or three different times where at the end of a meeting, we would just sit down. We would just like step back from the content of the conversation and go, how cool is this? Yeah. That in, in a workplace and, and in a company that was dominated by white men, that we were we were a powerful, effective, transformative leadership team of women. Yes. And so, you know, it, it, yeah, like that experience forever shaped me because it being able to see someone else lead that way, right, showed me that certain things were possible that I didn't know were, right? And it helped me to find in myself some of the, the courage and the confidence to show up in spaces and know that I had a right to be there. So 
she empowered me in a lot of those ways. And she also modeled some of the leadership that, that is really core to how I show up too. I remember distinctly one conversation I set up with her where I was just saying, I'm just overwhelmed all the time, just all the mm. time. <laughs> you know? And saying this, you know, to someone several levels above me and who was managing the, the program that I was working on, you know, and to have her just sit and listen mm. and just empathize. And, you know, yes, we did kind of move toward action near the end of that conversation, but she made the time at the end of what I know was a long day for her just to, to hear and be with me. And I, in turn, then like, you know, the, the power that that had impacting me, I, I took that in my office at, at that company. And, and later, frequently, I would find myself with someone in my office talking about how overwhelmed they were. And that always became what was most important. It was like, okay, shut the door, shut the computer. Like I would come around and sit on the other side of the desk and we would just sit there as humans together, like yeah. experiencing that moment and sharing in, in um, those feelings. And then we would shift that toward, okay, how do we make it different? Um, but being able to be with hard emotions. So she taught me that. Yeah, I, I, I man, I want to thank her too, because I took that from <laughs> you. I absolutely remember that, you know, instead of walking up and going, hey, what's the status on this? Go, no, first, how are you? Let's, yeah. and if, and if it's, um, there was an instance that um, somebody was, was going through some very severe personal things um, to the point that tears were frequent. And it was, I'm not going to talk to you about your code at all. Yep. It's how are you? What do you need? Do you need to go home? Do you, you know, and then, um, you know, being able to follow up, knowing you can follow up with, with that. So, so thank her for me too, because <laughs> that has been paid forward now. Um, and then, and yeah. then, and then hopefully, um, I assume I am not the only one that has taken that from you, but, uh, I will allow you to continue now. Okay. <laughs> the, the next one is also categorical and it's, it's, um, two people that all kind of match together. Um, these were people who were part of my coach training program, uh, Michelle Goss and um, uh, Randy Brenneman. And they are two coactive coaches, um, very, very skillful, amazingly masterful coaches. And when I was going through my, tra my coach training program, I particularly remember when they were co-leading those classes, just feeling like I didn't know this was possible. Mm. I didn't know that you could show up as a leader and, and in such incredibly articulate ways as they did and in powerful ways that embraced such immense range. It was skillful. It was intelligent. It was deep. It was emotional. It was imaginative. It was intuitive. It was recognizing the power in each of us and the power that is created in environments that is more than the sum of its parts. Mm. That what we are creating in this conversation is different than what I would have just written down on my own right? That there is some energy between us that is special and magical and more newness comes out of it. And I learned that from them. I, I did not know it was possible to show up in those ways. And then not only did I get to see it, I got to learn it. Mm. I got to see those skills and then figure out how to practice them myself. And then I saw it happen again and again in my own leadership. Your enthusiasm talking yeah. about this, like I can see you I mean, smiling and like clearly. bouncing around, but I'm sure everyone's going to be able to hear the brightness in your voice yes. as well. Yeah. Yes. So they showed me a world I didn't know was possible. So that's kind of the third one. And then the last one I'll, I'll end with is one that is, is still working on me a lot right now, which is um, a lot of Glennon Doyle's work. Mm. So um, I am someone who grew up in conservative Christianity. I, I spent a lot of time like working my way to a different place. And now I identify really strongly um, in a secular space and non-religious. Um, and sometimes, you know, the, the stories of um, women who have made a similar journey, who have kind of gone further or differently or, or more openly down certain paths is so incredibly inspiring. 
And so she, in her most recent book, Untamed, which was powerful and transformative in so many ways, um, she names some things that like, I think I've experienced in small pieces or things that I have felt inside and she articulates them in a way that is just like mic drop, like page after mm. page. That book is a work of art. Um, and especially around the role that women play in society. And so this is something I've been passionate about for a long time as, as a woman in tech, as a woman who kind of grew up in a lot of conservatism, I have bucked a lot of the norms of what um, the culture I grew up in said. I mean, you guys on the podcast won't be able to see me, but I have short like shaved hair on the sides of my head. I have a nose ring. I have a full sleeve tattoo. Like um, I lead men in the workplace. Like it's just very different from what I was told was appropriate for mm. a woman growing up. And so even though I've come a long way on that journey, some of the ways that Glennon Doyle will express and articulate the power of women who show up in the world is just so inspiring. And I want to share a quote from yes, her book. Yes, if I please. May. Awesome. So she says, we do not need more selfless women. What we need right now is more women who have detoxed themselves so completely from the world's expectations that they are full of nothing but themselves. A woman who is full of herself knows and trusts herself enough to say and do what must be done. She lets the rest burn. I love that. Right. Wow. <laughs> so like it just awakens these things in me that are good and beautiful and powerful. And um, in this spirit too, I, oh, actually I lied. I had five. I'm going to name one more and then we'll land it. It's fine. <laughs> the other one is, is I'm, I'm starting to learn from these incredible um, trans women who are mm. teaching me more about what it means to be a woman, more about what it means to be empowered and true to what is deeply personal and real than I think I've ever like learned or seen. And so um, even just a couple of days ago, my partner came in, in the room and found me, me sobbing as I was watching an episode of Pose, which is all about these yeah. amazing um, transgender characters and gay characters and people in the LGBTQ space in um, New York in the 1980s and 90s. And the power of these stories and the, and the deep knowing of there, this is not just a story. This is, this is a reflection of what is real in the world. And it is breaking open something that is powerful and vibrant and so very alive inside of me. And I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful. And I, I know that there's so much more to come on this path as mm. I learn how to engage um, but I, you know, learning from these women who have gone through so much and have changed so much mm -hmm. and are, are public and, and proud and also like teaching me what it is to be alive. Oh, so. have you watched Disclosure yeah. on Netflix? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Powerful. Watch it. Watch it. Yeah. Yes. Like, I didn't realize oh. going into, into it, it was trans history um, to the point of, you know, movies of yes. Uh, and I am a huge movie buff. I don't know if you remember, I take the day off after the Oscars because like that's a that's a <laughs> celebration. Um, so to see that and so many things that I didn't know, because yeah. yes, that's an area where we can all learn more and not an area. These we can learn. more. We can always learn more about anything. But um, but oh, my gosh, I love that. I love that. That that's yeah. that. Yes. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, like I said, as soon as like this was going live, I was like, oh my God, I hope Ashley does it. I hope Ashley does it. Um, uh, because <laughs> this was great. as I know, I've told you like the, the best mentor I've ever had and one of the most influential leaders I have ever had. Um, and I continue to learn from you and I knew I would. Plus I wanted to know when your book was coming out. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you so, so very much. It was wonderful to see you virtually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, right. hopefully the world will be less on fire and we can figure out the new normal and we can go have lunch or something again. That would be lovely. Yes. yes. But I wrote down all these things you talked about. Um, 
to cool. get to get to reading. So I will leave you to the rest of your weekend. I really, really appreciate your time as always. Absolutely. This was great. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, that's it for my conversation with Ashley. I do hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, I learn from her every time we speak and hope one day to be in her sphere of influence and education again. Please feel free, if you haven't done so already, to subscribe to the podcast to be notified of each new episode. Our next episode features Rhonda Watson, president of PFLAG Woodstock. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy. This is Brittany Bangert for Leading Georgia. Georgia.